So we have Rory Sutherland and Abba, is it Baco? Yeah, Baco, Abba Baco. Awesome, awesome. So yeah. thank you both for being with us today. Uh, this is our first episode of the Tribe by Tribe podcast. The goal is just to connect youth culture ambassadors with media and advertising, just culture related professionals. So anything related to trends, branding, marketing, that's a safe place for everybody to just be open, vulnerable. No, no holds barred. You know, we just, we're just here to have a open conversation. So, so to start us off, I'm going to throw out this, uh, this icebreaker where if you, if you can describe yourself in three words. Oh, right. And either Rory or Abba can start us off. <laughs> I'll let okay, we'll start. Okay, uh, definitely curious. Um, uh, so curious would be one. Um, another one would be um, strangely conservative in some respects. Okay, so so. And the third one would be um, uh, yeah, eccentric, I guess. Yeah. All right. That right. Sounds, that sounds good. And Mr. Abba? Yeah, my three would be, um, I think, first, inquisitive. Um, inquisitive in nature, like asking questions, like to know things. Um, probably second, uh, would be, um, I would say, sporty in, in, in many ways. Yeah, I, I like a good range of sports. I play a few myself and, um, yeah, quite active in that area. Um, and then third, I would say, hmm, I would say probably analytical because I analyze everything um, in such uh, a stringent manner. Um, I think I'm really, um, yeah, really like to analyze every little detail around myself. So, yeah, that's what I would say in those three oh. words. So we're going to come back to those, those, uh, those terms shortly. So I'm going to ask Abba, can you go ahead and introduce yourself and like what type of work you're doing and, um, yeah. and how you got into the, the line of work that you're in? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I graduated um, from university. I went to Plymouth University where I met Toby. Um, graduated in 2017. But within that um, time, um, I did a placement year and I was looking you know, for lots of different options and um, looking at where I was going to sort of start my professional career. Um, stumbled upon this Toyota um, GB, the head of uh, office operations in Surrey, um, which just ended up being fantastic here for myself. Learned loads and just, you know, that really got me into the automotive industry. I think I had another opportunity to probably um, to go to SAP, um, who are um, rivals of IBM as well. I turned that down um, and I sort of pursued Toyota instead, which I thought um, for me ended up being a great, you know, decision, I think. Um, so graduated and then went to, up to Coventry to work for Peugeot Citroen. Um, I was there for two years, um, in which I, my, pre, my last role was a project manager, which is probably the most interesting role I've done um, since now, uh, managing a number of Citroen products. Um, and that was, you know, really um, helped me, um, you know, come into the space of, make my own sort of in the space of automotive, but also it taught me a lot as well, um, how to work with different people and network of, you know, with a lot of uh, different um, stakeholders um, within a company as well. Um, within that time, though, um, what I did um, in that space, um, I volunteered for a company called 2020 Change, um, and they sort of um, they sought to sort of um, empower the streetwise youth of the UK of London 
giving them um, skills, giving them sort of um, just a mindset that they don't have to be where they started off, you know, in deprived, deprived backgrounds or, you know, um, you know, have to succumb to social pressures. And we sort of gave them an uplift, you know, with our sessions, but also we gave them opportunities as well and sort of go into the working world, um, regardless of what backgrounds they came from. Some of them came from prisons and youth offenders units. Some I've, I've been to youth offenders unit um, to sort of speak to some of them as well, which was quite encouraging for them, but even for myself as well. Um, but they, some of them came from just, you know, boroughs and areas in the UK that, you know, weren't as nice or weren't as um, um, glamorous, if I can put it that way. Um, and then most recently, actually, um, so I've just um, literally got a job. I start tomorrow with How and I um, in Surrey, um, in Leatherhead as a data analyst. So that's quite an interesting one, sales operations. Um, so I've got back into the automotive space. Um, but also most recently I um, sort of um, was launched into our sort of um, sort of um, touted for a role um, within uh, Damilola Taylor Trust. So this is a charity, a uh, well-known charity in, in, in London. Um, and um, I've been working um, in the youth board, but most recently I've um, been sort of um, pushed up to the um, advisory board now um, to sort of partner with them. And there's a, there's a special day coming. I hope you guys can keep a lookout for it. Um, it's called a Day of Hope. It's in uh, it's uh, in December the seventh, and we're looking to have this massive event with you know the likes of the Prime Minister, um, key stakeholders within different um, organisations and and social enterprises in the UK, just all coming together to sort of commiserate the 20th anniversary of um, a young boy that was killed in the year 2000 called Damilola Taylor, hence the organisation. Um, and he had this idea of wanting to become a doctor and really spread hope, you know, to the world. And so we're using that day to talk about good stories. Um, and talk about good things happening within our communities, irrespective of all the negative that we see, um, you know, within certain um, demographics and all around the UK within the youth as well. So this is centered around really empowering young people and really giving them an opportunity and show, showing that they can actually, you know, be more than um, society tells them um, they can be. So um, in a nutshell, that's sort of what I do. And um, yeah, without going into too much detail. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much, Rory. I am aware that you have a, a strong background. However, <laughs> I'd like you to only kind of touch on your role as the vice chair, chairman at Ogilvy. Right. Um, can you hear me? Yeah. 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 Um, very simply, I, <laughs> um, I joined Ogilvy uh, as a graduate trainee. And as part of your graduate training process, I spent two weeks in the creative department as a copywriter and pretty much although you were supposed as a graduate trainee you were supposed to become an account man i pretty much had a kind of epiphany and decided from that moment on that i wanted to be a copywriter and i was hastened in that quite a bit by getting fired a couple of years about a year and a half later <laughs> and then there was one job going in the creative department which i applied for and got so I kind of saved myself from being fired from Ogilvy by getting that one remaining job as a copywriter. And I did that variously as copywriter, head of copy. Um, uh, I was creative director. And then I was vice chairman of the whole group. And as, as part of that, I was president of a thing called the Institute of Practitioners in Advertising, would you believe it, which is the name, which is the... British equivalent of what the Americans call the four A's, the American Association of Ad Agencies. And when you're president, you're president for two years and you have a kind of agenda. And the idea is that you try and inculcate or encourage something right across the category, right across the whole ad industry. 
And it was a fantastic thing because most of the time we, we spend in advertising discussing specific agency um, affairs. To be absolutely honest, all ad agencies are kind of the same. <laughs> you know, they're not that different, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're cultural differences, all that sort of thing. But what was really interesting is to look at advertising from a as a sector and look at the creative industries as a sector. But what I chose as my two-year agenda thing was about a year before or a year and a half before, I discovered behavioral economics. I'd read Nudge by Richard Thaler. I'd read a few Robert Cialdini books. And I realized that when I was a copywriter in direct marketing, we kind of knew all this stuff instinctively, but nobody had thought to kind of put it into a science or to codify it or to, you know, classify the whole thing. And so I realized that behavioral science was what I used to call, I always used to say, there's this missing discipline in marketing and advertising, which is going really deep into how people think, decide, and act, and how you can change behavior or encourage behavior, not necessarily using bought media or advertising, but just by changing the way in which information and choices are presented effectively. Okay. And so I made that my two-year agenda for the IPA presidency. And then when I left, Ogilvy said, we don't want you spending two years promoting behavioral science to the whole industry and then not doing it within Ogilvy. So we want you to start a practice here in Ogilvy uh, to drive behavioral science. And it's now about eight years old. It's about 15 people strong. Um, It's pretty robust. So during COVID, we ended up effectively getting more work. And of course, COVID for marketers in general is, in a sense, uh, it raises marketing's importance because suddenly every business question is a behavioral question. You know, it's not how do we hedge fuel prices or how do we, you know, improve distribution. It's suddenly how do we get people to buy cars again? How do we get people to go on planes again? Yeah. And so I've spent my whole time um, being part, what what was so good about it? I I could parlay everything I learned as a copywriter and as a creative, but at the age of sort of 50, find a completely new outlet and reinvent myself, which you need to do. As a creative person, you need to do that anyway, because you've got to move on. You can't sit there as creative director for sort of 12 years, preventing Mm -hmm. everybody from moving on up. Mm -hmm. So the ability to create a new discipline, which is now, you know, I mean, the whole category is doing quite well. Um, you know, there are more and more of these agencies that look at questions from a behavioral standpoint. And I'll just give you one example, bit of work, not mine, but uh, done by my team. Um, if you want to encourage recycling, okay, yeah, you can talk about environmental benefits, you can talk about polar bears, you can talk about global warming, anything you like. But basically, nobody's going to start recycling until they've got two bins. So, you know, an example of our work was a campaign in London, which has incredible results, actually, called One Bin is Rubbish. And the whole point is, if you can get people to get two bins, or if they can't afford two bins, you can provide them with a kind of hook. They can hang on their existing bin so they can separate out the the real garbage from the material that can be reused. And my contention is that we spend too much time essentially looking at behavior by trying to change behavior by arguing at people. And actually, a lot of what changes behavior is context and circumstance. And we need, just need to spend more time looking at that. Mm-hmm. 
And so, you know, I think I think there's a lot of kind of wasted energy in trying to give people reasons to do things when in many cases you could just make it easier for them to do the proper thing anyway. <laughs> I mean, very yeah. interesting, by the way, since we've got, since, since Abba's in the car industry, I mean, you know, I think it's really interesting to debate the whole electric car phenomenon because the mm. whole car industry knows it has to reinvent itself in 15 years. It's incredibly yeah. difficult to do. I mean, really, yeah. really difficult to do because you've got this huge investment in plant around, uh, you know, um, the internal combustion engine. Yeah, but also, it, it's, it's really a behavioral problem. There are, you know, mm. when you think about it, I mean, the anxiety, range anxiety with electric yeah. cars yeah. is actually pretty irrational because how many times do I actually drive 400 miles in a day? <laughs> right? And so the sort of thing we'd suggest there is, look, if you had an insure, if, you know, if I had a Tesla, right, yeah. and yeah. it does naught to 60 in 4.5 seconds, yeah. I'm not going to have any trouble on the three days a year in which I need to drive to Manchester and back in the same day. I'm not going to have any trouble saying, if I could borrow your Volvo, can I, you can have my Tesla, right? Yeah. I'm not going to have any trouble making that swap. So what you yeah. may need is an insurance product. It's not a car product. You know, where if you can just yeah. say, okay, if you've got an electric car, you can basically swap with somebody else for five days of the year. Yeah. Then on the five freakish occasions when I need to deliver a fridge to Manchester, <laughs> which probably isn't going to happen at all. As most people say who have an electric car, I mean, even in America, which is much bigger than the UK, they say, I drive my car home, I plug it in. When I leave the next day, it's fully charged. You know, it's an entirely irrational fear. And actually, you know, the other point is a lot of people will claim they got an electric car to help the environment. But let's be honest, not to 60 in 4.5 seconds isn't exactly unappealing. You know, <laughs> we shouldn't bury that. Yeah. And um, so, you know, I think, it, I think it's really, really interesting to look at the real, to, what we tend to do is we tend to use either market research or economics to look at a kind of very simple rationalization of human behavior. And what we find more and more is that's not the real reason at all. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's very interesting if you look at an issue, say, like deprivation. I was talking to someone who grew up on the south side of Chicago, who's now quite senior at Coke. And her point was very simple. She said, you can't be what you can't see. Yeah. You know, if you don't have any examples in your community of someone who's done something else, yeah. then you're not going to do it. It's, yeah. it's, 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 the most, it's one of those phrases which is both beautifully obvious, but really powerful and important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can, um, I can totally relate to that. My father's mother, she worked many years for the city of Detroit in the IT department, which kind of sparked my interest in technology at, at, a, at, a, at a young age. And as I grew up, most of my <laughs> interest uh, yeah. is, is swung more towards anything dealing with computers. The, the early days of computing were, in a sense, really meritocratic, weren't they? Because if, and it's a big if, but if you had access to the, a reasonable amount of equipment, you could basically, you know, you knew whether you were good or not. Right. You know, it wasn't the basis of what people were telling you, you know, yeah. or what, what you were told you, you could expect. Yeah. You kind of knew, you, you know, you knew if you were good. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, so sorry to cut, cut you off. Did, was, did you have a little more that you wanted to throw out only, there? Only one thing. I was just giving a talk about um, 
to um, it's a very interesting uh, uh, charity called Marketing Kind in the UK, which looks at getting talented marketers to look at uh, social problems or or to help out charities, for example, right. with their marketing. So you're donating your time and expertise. And there's one charity which wants people to hire the dis uh, disabled. And it, the whole brief is, we want you to see the person, not the disability. And I said, coming down to it, I said, we, we talk a lot about unconscious bias, which does exist, I'm not denying it. But I said, the other thing you've got to look at is just unconscious boringness, okay? <laughs> and I think that most business decisions, particularly hiring, it isn't that people are actually necessarily prejudiced against any particular defined group. They just like hiring people who looks like everybody else because you don't expose yourself, okay? If you make a really boring decision in business, nobody notices you've made a decision. Yeah. And so if anything goes wrong, you don't get any blame. Yeah. And we've noticed this in behavioral science looking time and time again, it's called defensive decision-making. And it's the same thing, which is, you know, why you stick with the same suppliers or why you, you know, if you ask for a flight everybody to New York, everybody gives you a flight from Heathrow to JFK. And they know that because that's the boring choice, if anything goes wrong, you'll blame British Airways, you won't blame them. Whereas if they, if they book you a flight from a smaller airport or they book you a flight to Newark, if anything goes wrong, they've now made a decision and it's a kind of noticeable unusual decision yeah. and they might get blamed so there's this instinct which pervades the whole of business which is if keep your head down and do the boring thing and hire the expected candidates and you know and, and and hire people who look like the people who work there already and it goes actually it goes very deep because it's the natural thing which is you know the more kind of boringly conventional the people i hire are the less likely it is that I've put my head above the parapet at all. Mm. And it is just mm. unconscious boringness. And, if we, and I think business pays the price every day for this because mm. they hire people who are more, they hire a, a, a narrower range of more boring people from more conventional backgrounds. It's rather like, you know, I mean, I, you know, it, let's say I'd like, I always argue this in Ogilvy with hiring. I said, look, if someone comes to you who hasn't got a degree or they failed, they dropped out of university, but they're like British under 17 backgammon champion or kickboxing champion or whatever, you've got to interview them because they've done something incredible, right? Yeah. Okay. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter what the field is. If you can do something kind of impressive by the age you're 18, you're an impressive person. So we should interview you. And I said, we shouldn't use, we shouldn't go, well, okay, in the past, we've always hired people from these universities and we've hired people with these degrees. So we're going to do more of the same. You, you, you've got to actually, particularly in an ad agency, where the whole point of an ad agency is that it provides diverse points of view. It, divides, yeah, yeah. it provides different viewpoints. Yeah. It's, a, it's, it's interesting that you brought that up just now and with your background being in um, creative. One of the main yeah. questions I wanted to touch on the, during this conversation today is, from your perspective, how should upcoming creatives pursue connecting with agencies, brands, um, should they be afraid to connect with professionals due to their titles? Well, we've got a bit of a problem in creative in a sense, because in the old days, you'd hire people from anywhere and you'd train them up. Okay. So literally, I mean, I, I had a colleague who used to do this in Hong Kong because he said, 
The problem in Hong Kong is everybody who's kind of got a degree wants to go into banking or something. So he used to recruit people in bars and just train them to, to train them to do the job. You know, he'd find someone really interesting in a bar, you know, and literally kind of almost hire just on the basis of instinct. And he produced incredibly good people. I mean, that was the interesting thing. And the, the problem now, I think, is that you, you need people, because we're paid by the hour, you kind of need people who can hit the ground running. But on the other hand, I think if you there's some really good entities in London, like the School of Communication Arts, uh, for example. And there are one-year courses which you can do, which basically within one year mean you're job ready. And um, the great thing about the School of Communication Arts is it has a number of bursaries. So the way it's funded is that people from poorer backgrounds get to go for free. Now, of course, it's not free because you've got to survive for a year. It's worth remembering mm. that. And I, I worry about this. I worry about the whole business where, you know, there are, you know, increasingly, actually, education looks meritocratic. But in a way, it's a bit of a middle class racket, isn't it? Because if you haven't got the funds to invest in the three years to get the qualification, you know, it's pretty, you know, it's pretty difficult to do that. And also, if you, you know, if you don't live in London, I mean, the, the, the other thing that really excites me about Zoom is the fact that London property prices are so crippling. We've got to work out a way to work with young people who don't live in London. I mean, I really, you know, because, I mean, one of the things that kills creativity is actually high property prices. You know, because in the end, you can't experiment. You know, if you go to weird places, Detroit is one of them, of course, because you've got really, really low property prices relative to the rest of the US. Yeah. And so if someone wants to start an experimental business, they can do it effectively. Now, you can't do that in San Francisco and you can't do it in New York to anything like the same extent. And so uh, one of the things Ogilvy did do is we had a thing called The Pipe, which just hired really interesting creative talent. And we'd have someone who is a poet and we'd have someone who is kind of, you know, a musician. And we'd hire, we'd hire them on trial. And um, obviously it's had to stop during COVID, but we'd like to relaunch that. Because we need, the way in which everybody ends up recruiting from the same spaces is dangerous in the long term. You know, it's a neat, it's a neat fix in the short term, but it's dangerous unless those places are really good at offering kind of bursaries and scholarships uh, to people who, um, uh, for people who don't have the funds. Then it's you know it's it's a real problem. Yeah, and I mean I mean that about London as well, which is that you know, there's also things like older talent. Okay, you know a former colleague of mine always believed there are a lot of people in their thirties or forties who just had enough of accountancy, who would make fantastic copywriters. You know, um, and uh, it's you know it becomes harder and harder to hire, except from a very narrow pool. And that worries me every day. I mean, you know, now, I mean, what I did in moving from being an, a, an account handler to being a copywriter would be really hard to do now. Mm -hmm. And everything's become more regimented and it's become more thought out. Mm -hmm. And it's become, in a sense, more professional. But the price you pay when you become more professional is you also become more uniform, I think. Mm -hmm. If I tried to hire someone because I'd met them in the pub, it'd be really, really difficult. You know, the number of arguments I'd have to have, you know, no, you have to go through this procedure and that procedure. Yeah. yeah. And uh, that worries me. Yeah. 
So what about you, Abba? My background is in uh, media analytics also. So when you are gathering data and then you're analyzing data, you're thinking of all the different ways this story can come together or how it did come together and what we can do to change it, what optimizations can be done. Um, Have you had instances where you were maybe apprehensive to share or you were like, I don't care what your title is, I'm just going to go for it? Yeah. Yeah, it's really, really interesting in that regards because um, I think it's it's always modeled or it's always um, uh, defined by the company culture um, in in many ways. Um, and so I found, and, and what I find is quite interesting is that obviously with the automotive brands, especially, um, you see um, a lot of them take on the culture that um, the home country um, brand comes from. So, for example, with Toyota. Um, you see a lot of the Japanese culture feed through irrespective, regardless of where the company is. So I was obviously operating in the UK, but we implemented or we tried to enforce a lot of the Japanese um, ethos and, and the principles. So we have, for example, we have uh, something called Gen- Genchi Genbutsu, uh, which means go see and go do or something, something of that regards anyways. I hope I'm saying it right. But it literally means that when you've got a project and when you want to do something, you're encouraged to actually go to the place that your project is going to be implemented to see if it's actually going to be feasible to be able to be uh, to be done in that regards. And so with that company, with Toyota, I was actually more, I was encouraged to bring ideas and bring in things that would essentially help the processes. Um, Toyota is also all about processes because of your Japanese culture. They like to write things down, ensure that things are in place and you follow the line and you do mm-hmm. it by the book, which is a good thing. But also, I think marrying that up with the culture of ethos of having a family feel and, you know, being able to have that flexibility, you're able then to improve and refine processes because they're all about, you know, yeah, if you've probably read, I think the book, well-known book called the Toyota, the Toyota Way, which, you know, looks at, you know, how to improve and refine processes. And I think that was taken on by a lot of automotive brands, but also um, manufacturers outside of the automotive industry as well. Um, to see how they can be able to better, um, you know, refine their process and, and, and improve their working practices. Um, so in that regards, that was interesting. But then when you when I moved over to another company in, in terms of Peugeot Citroen, um, that was a French company. Um, and so um, it was quite rigid in the operations. About maybe also, not also culture, but also the performance of the company actually has a, an impact into how they're able to take in ideas. Mm-hmm. Because Persia Citroen weren't performing as well over the years leading up to my, my arrival. And so what happened was there was a real tight ship that was needed to be had so that they can be operating in a good way and in profit. And when that normally happens, you see that there's a lot of directives. There's a lot of you do this or you're out or you, there's a lot of um, rigid operations that take place because they have to hit a certain uh, amount of uh, a number or they have to hit a certain profit and they're scared that if they go outside of the box in, in any way, they may return back to where they were prior. So I think Toyota was a you know, profitable company. Um, the, the culture also was you know, uh, um, you know, family-based, you know, open, flexible. But then you look at a French company and you see how they operate, it was a bit harder. Now, was I directly stopped from doing that? Was I directly stopped from you know, bringing ideas? No. But when you sense and you feel you know, the sort of tension in the air in certain places, you probably are restricted from doing so. And I feel not, any, not to bash or not to um, um, hold anything against, you know, uh, Persia Citroen as a company. They're fantastic. But I guess, you know, when you have certain uh, ethos and culture, working cultures, as a sort of grad coming in, it's sort of harder to say, 
here's the idea I want to put forward and this is what I think. I did have quite a few ideas as well, you know, coming through and running through my mind, um, but it was just a lot harder to implement because also when a company is, is so pressurized and looking to make profits and looking to hit numbers and so, in so many different aspects, there's so much work to be done that you end up getting lost in the work and there's, you can't really expand into other areas. Um, and so um, it's, 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 um, the, the, the line of operational, sorry, uh, it is lean working practices. And so there's not many people available for certain roles and you're sort of responsible for a number of things. And so that affects um, your creative sort of um, uh, 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 flexes and, 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 and mm -hmm. um, abilities as well in many ways, shape or form. So in that regard, that's quite interesting. But um, myself also working with voluntary, um, in working in voluntary roles with different um, social enterprises and charities, um, that's where obviously your creative ability sort of flows out because now you're willing to do anything and you've got the flexibility to explore different areas, obviously within a within limit and within reason. Um, but that has allowed me to sort of um, um, sort of suggest ideas. Being in the advisory board as well, the Damilolo Taylor Trust, um, you know, is always open to you know seeing what you can bring into the table. As a young person, my voice is heard. My voice is valuable because I'm closer to the ground in terms of, you know, knowing, you know, sort of what young people are going through. And so that's sort of allowed me to explore certain ideas and certain things that I would no normally not have um, done as well. So, yeah, I think that's quite, it's been an interesting journey for myself. Um, I look forward to my next chapter and I think um, uh, looking at, you know, just how, you know, um, Rory touched on it, the automotive industry is moving. Um, there's so much scope for growth. Um, there's so much scope for uh, for change and also because of the disruptors that come into the market as well. Um, you have the likes of the, um, not just the traditional automotive brands, but you have the tech-based companies that are trying to move into the automotive space because of the uh, technologies that are coming in and just the, the, the opportunity that we see with, um, is a new word now that they've coined it as, you know, um, mobility and um, um, urban mobility in that regards. Um, yeah. Just um, people trying to get from A to B and that's, that's the important thing. It doesn't matter if they're, own a car or they rent a car um, and so now looking at to how to leverage that space and how to take advantage of it is a big um, challenge but also presents a lot of opportunity that would allow someone like myself to bring in ideas and bring in a lot of um, 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 uh, or try and implement some things that I see are necessary or will be helpful to the industry so yeah. It's really interesting That's in data good. analytics which is the freedom to go forward and, t and take an idea on because i quite often think in data analytics the most value is actually the data telling you something you ne you never would have believed in other words it's discovering surprises and exceptions yeah and a lot of the time it's used the wrong way it's used which is mm. you know i have this belief can you just confirm that i'm right mm, and yeah. that's not the real the real value yeah. of data is that it tells yeah. you things you never would have guessed and we tend Absolutely. to use it in exactly the opposite direction, which is just to reinforce our existing hunches, you know, yeah. which I don't, I, I don't think is really the healthy way to do it. <laughs> absolutely. Rory is actually absolutely spot on. <laughs> yeah, I can relate to that. I've had instances when I was working in analytics where we would put together decks to present to whoever the client was. And basically the request was, can you just can you just put together a, a a graphic that shows this and that this is the expected um, turnout, not necessarily the the result that actually happened. Basically, it's pacifying the client. 
rather than just yeah. being honest and letting them know, hey, this didn't go as well as we would have liked. But here are some areas where we can optimize and improve some things so that we can see how things can turn out from this point forward. When I first came through the, through the door, every, managers or upper leadership were encouraging people to to uh, take chances, take risks, ask questions, be creative. However, when people took that risk and shared those ideas, a lot of folks were either turned down or they were um, as frowned upon. For myself, I had certain aspirations of trying to help out the agency I was with in a communications capacity um, because of my experience with video and photography. When I was connecting with people outside of the U.S., my uh, inquiries were more welcomed. When I was connecting with people in the U.S., like L.A., New York, or even within my my office here in Detroit, a lot of times people with these these titles, with directors, VPs, all of that, they were not receptive at all. Why do you think things were more so receptive with people outside of the U.S. than in the U.S.? Uh, one thing is, I suppose, we're very curious about the U.S. Whereas one of the things I notice is that New Yorkers aren't very curious about anything outside New York, to be honest. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm not sure I'd hold L.A. guilty or whatever quite the, to the same extent. But I do notice that New Yorkers automatically assume that if you're outside New York, it's highly unlikely you have anything to contribute. <laughs> I mean, that's a bit of a it's a bit of an unfair um, generalization but I think mm -hmm. there is an element of that and um, uh, there is a there is a weird thing in the US and by the way I'm a huge Americanophile I love going to the States I go there on holiday every couple of years I really love the place but there is a weird thing sometimes in the US where people don't like to look for inspiration anywhere outside much so, you know, I always said, you know, when you have these huge debates about healthcare, why don't you go and have a look at Canada and see maybe, you know, maybe it's, it's not very far away. Maybe the Canadians have got something right on healthcare and you could learn from them. But that's unthinkable. That no, no, nobody even thinks of doing that, which I find a bit weird. Because I think that business, I think you could improve the world a lot if every single government had a ministry of stealing, where essentially the minister of stealing stuff would just go around the world and say, OK, you know, there are a lot of things that are good about the UK, but the Koreans have got this right. Or, you, you know, you have to say that the Japanese know how to do trains or whatever it might be. You know, yeah. I mean, someone was showing me a video on YouTube of a Japanese luxury sleeper coach. Like, it's a bus, but you have a little cabin in it with a bed. Well, you know, why has nobody, nobody done that in Europe? You know, yeah. just go and steal it. And there is a kind <laughs> of very weird not invented here thing. Um, one thing about Brits is they generally will, I think British culture will nick stuff quite readily, won't it? <laughs> you know. I think so. Yeah. So if you look at our food, for example, you know, if, if our, our you know, Indian food is kind of the national cuisine, you know, there is that kind of thing where people will actually, you know, take things from anywhere else. Um, but that is that is interesting. Yeah. You find you find anybody outside the US, you find there's much more interest and curiosity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The reason I bring that up is because with our 
prospective audience of this particular podcast with there being uh, young creatives or just young people who, mm. um, who want to get into the industry or just have a curiosity about the industry. Um, just sharing some things about basically my goal is for them to be able to not stay in the box and think that they, that they are confined to whatever city that they are in where it's a whole world out there and take those chances to connect with people outside of your town, outside of your state. Um, I guess in other countries outside of your province. And um, also, I I mean, I'm one of these, one of the things I'm obsessed with, as I said, I was kind of a massive zoom enthusiast two years ago because someone at Ogilvy, some inspired person got a zoom account for the whole of Ogilvy. Um, And I said, hold on a second, this changes the world, right? Because, um, as I said, first of all, forget about the fact that it's not as good as a face-to-face meeting. The fact is that most of your Zoom conversations would never have been face-to-face meetings. At best, they would have been emails, okay? Mm-hmm. They would have been a really crap email exchange, you know, which would trail on for two weeks and then it would <laughs> die out. Nothing would ever happen. Um, and my view is that, I mean, one of the interesting things I said is, look, if you want access to interesting people, I've got a theory that everybody on, okay, not Bill Clinton and not, you know, Tony Blair or whatever, not George <laughs> Clooney, but nearly everybody on the, pa- on the planet will give you an hour of their time on Zoom for $1,000 or less, right? You know, a lot yeah. of people will give it for less. Yeah. But my point was, if you said, will you come and speak at our annual whatever it is, and they've got to fly to Amsterdam and they've got to turn up and stay in a hotel and they can't go on holiday that week and all that stuff, they're going to yeah. want, you know, $15,000 to, you know, with the flight costs to go and turn up on yeah. Zoom, right? You go, well, I'm on holiday in Barbados that week, but I can walk in from the beach, talk to you for an hour, take my shirt off again, go back to the beach, you know, right? <laughs> it's a completely different concept of an hour of your time. And so the, the ability, I think, for ideas to ha- idea exchange to happen is and should be really, really huge. I mean, the ability for different people, you know, particularly if you speak English, I have to say, because I mean, you've got this, you know, whatever its faults as a language, it's got incredible geographical spread. Yeah. You know, um, there's no other language which isn't geographically concentrated in the way that English is. Yeah. And um, so the ability to kind of, you know, have meetings with people. On, my, my colleague in Australia was just telling me about this new thing called, um, what's it called? It's called, um, I think it's called, is it ribs and tins? Wings and tins. Yeah. So we were talking about the whole idea that, Actually, the way to launch a really successful restaurant chain is just to focus on one really small thing. You know, it's just to do, you know, because of Starbucks, nobody wanted to pay three bucks fifty for a cup of coffee. But if the place is all about coffee, people will pay quite a lot of money for it, you know, because yeah. they just assume if all you do is coffee, it's going to be pretty good. Okay. Yeah. And this guy started a thing in Sydney called Wings and Tins, which just does tins of beer and chicken wings. That's it, you know, and they deliver and you can collect. And, but having those conversations where you can learn what's going on on the other side of the planet, uh, you know, in a kind of Zoom chat. I mean, if it doesn't lead to a kind of improvement in general creative ideation, I'll be really depressed because we'll have missed yeah. an opportunity. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So, Abba, um, Toby shared with us that you are a tech enthusiast. Yeah. To what extent does that mean to you? Like what, 
what type of technology yeah. are you enthused about that you have an infinity yeah. about? Absolutely. Um, I would say, actually, I'm a big um, aviation I'm a fuseless aviation fan. Um, I, I mean, I, 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 using that as tech is a bit unfair. However, that's how I got into probably even the automotive industry as well. So I literally, when I was um, in secondary school, I would go on YouTube and watch videos of how planes are made um, in that regards. I was, I was intrigued by just how it all came together with the little pieces. They, uh, you know, the, you see the uh, practical um, not the practical, sorry, you see the um, metal uh, wielding um, of just the wings and just the, the, the body of the plane. And then you see the how the chairs and then you see how the electric, electrics come together and just things of that nature. Um, I think that sort of whetted my appetite for just, you know, going into just the world of AI um, and going into just all things technology and seeing just how it improves our daily lives. I think that really um, intrigues me in many different ways. And so I haven't got a particular area in regards to, if I say tech, in that instance. However, I do have a big affinity towards, you know, aviation, automotive transport mode um, of, of, of operations, because I think that has a big impact on us as individuals, but there's so much scope for growth in those areas and it's constantly improving. Just the other day I saw um, just how um, a new plane, a V-winged plane um, was um, being uh, modeled I mean, by a company in Netherlands and they go into, they're looking to test it within the next few years. What that does, it reduces um, plane um, fuel costs by 30% by each flight. If you think about the, the profit and the gains that is for each company, that could potentially revive the, um, the aviation industry with just, you know, how much has been hit um, in tell recent that, times. Tell me that again. It, 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 what, what is it? It's a wing shape, is it? Yeah, it's V. It's a V-wing shape. So it's, yeah. v, it's instead of being one streamlined, it's literally V. And so that, what, what that does, obviously, makes it more efficient in the air. Um, you know, it, it makes takes advantage of the... Um, of the uh, of, of the wind um sort of uh, i forgot the word of it but yeah it takes advantage of just the efficiencies you see from wind um friction um and so that just makes it 30 percent more efficient as a company in netherlands are developing it i think they're working with um either airbus or boeing i can't remember one of the two um, and so they're looking to sort of test it within the next few years they've done like model testing um mm -hmm. so um um and, and and they've been successful with that and so they're looking to obviously effectively refine and improve their operations in, in the years to come. Um, so yeah, within that area, I, I, it really intrigues me. And so just within obviously automotive, you see autonomous driving, um, you see yep. driverless cars, you know, that's quite a big um, you know, piece of technology. And, and to be fair, whoever cracks that code first in terms of you know, getting it you know, 100% right, <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's, it's doing pretty well. And so we see the likes of Google, um, there's a company called Waymo in China. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, we are obviously looking to take advantage of this and they've been, I think, spending a lot of time in America as well. I've done billions of miles of autonomous driving. It's still a long way to go, but, you know, we see how these gains in these different industries um, are look, really looking to um, change the way we think, change the way we operate. Just today, I think uh, Apple about to announce their um, five nanometer chip um, in that regards, and that just means that the capabilities of the smartphone is now just enhanced even more so. Um, I think it's the first of its kind, um, and that just allows the phone to be more effective, efficient with using less power. Um, and now, apparently, um, the phone can learn or machine uh, can machine learn ten times faster than the, the nearest smartphone. Um, I think Apple are about to announce that today if they haven't already. And so, there's a lot going on in the tech industries. I particularly, uh, just in closing. Um, been learning a bit of code over the last few months that I've been out of work 
um, bit of alongside some SQL as well. But you know, looking to understand the front end and back end and how it all comes together um, and how it all drives, you know, you know, just the um, sort of um, world that we see today as well. So we see the likes of Python becoming more popular. Um, you know, not just even with um, yeah, within you know my age group as well. Um, a lot of people looking to transition into that space because I think that's where a lot of things are going, anyways. And we see how the transfer of jobs is going from the traditional routes, obviously, to tech is really taking over. And if you understand a bit of code, if you understand a bit of front-end or back-end development, you're you're looking to have a nice pay and, and a good job for the next few years, anyway. So that's the way things are going, and that's what I'm looking at. So I'm in the automotive space, but my eyes and ears are always open for. And how I can keep learning, developing, and keep pushing with you know the space that I find myself in, and I'm um, looking to transition to other areas as well in the future. Because I'm, I'm really intrigued by how do people buy? <coughs> I was thinking of buying an electric car. Yeah. And I have this weird dilemma, which is: is it like buying a car ten years ago, where you chose the car you liked, and basically you were buying a car? It was a standalone item. It was like buying a vase or a hat, right? Mm. <laughs> or is it like buying a mobile phone where you're really buying into the whole ecosystem? You're buying into the operating system. So, you know, should you buy a Tesla in a sense? Because the car with, when it's a software purchase rather than the hardware purchase, the yeah. car with the most users is sort of the best car. Just as, yeah. okay, you know, iOS has the most apps because yeah. it's got a lot of users. Nobody was developing any apps for kind of Windows Phone. Yeah. And in the same way, are you buying into a whole ecosystem of chargers, you know, um, software upgrades? You know, in other words, are you, does your car get improved by learning from everybody else's driving? Because in that case, you just mm -hmm. want to buy the car of which there are most cars, really. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, which it's is what kind of weird, I, I, it's a weird decision. I was kind of going, what am I actually buying here? Have you made a decision yet, Rory? Well, I, well <laughs> I, I, I've got a bit of a name drop, actually, which I was, I was looking at the Tesla Model S, a Model 3. Ah, that's nice. And then this um, a guy, Jason Calacanis, who's best mates with Elon Musk, said, wait for yeah. the Model Y. So given that I'm not driving anywhere, I don't really need yeah. to replace my car for another two years. It's done 80,000 yeah. miles, but I mean, it'll yeah. do another 10. Okay, I might as well wait. The Model Y doesn't come out in the UK until... Well, theoretically, it's 2022. I think they'll probably okay. bring it out a bit early, actually. Yeah, yeah. So he said, wait for the Model Y. Interesting. Um, and so what's your particular favourite? My particular favourite, in terms of electric cars or in terms of Tesla? Because you're, you're moving to work with Hyundai, who do one already, don't they? Yeah, they've got, they've got the Ionic. Yeah, they've got the Ionic, and they're looking to bring out three new um, electric-type vehicles between now and 2026, um, which is quite interesting. So they've already got a range. Um, I think they've got a Kona electric, they've got Ionic um, electric, and they've got a lot of hybrid and um, plug-in hybrids as well, um, as well. Um, but my favorite, I think my favorite, if I'm looking at, I'm looking at probably will be the Teslas, um, not just because of the um, uh, you know battery capabilities, but I think because of the software capabilities as well. They've got a lot of technology in there that actually, yeah, that you, you probably know that hasn't you know been even unraveled or unlocked yet. And won't be for a few years. So they're ahead of the game in many ways. And I think the forward thinking nature of Elon Musk actually intrigues me. I like him as a person. It does, it does slightly pain <laughs> you when you realize that when you pay for the, um, what is it, autopilot upgrade, yeah. you would be paying £5,000 purely for software. 
Yeah. So I think all the cars you can actually you can actually back upgrade it, can't you? You can pay the five thousand pounds at any time because your yeah, car has yeah. all the cameras, it has all the hardware to begin with, yeah, and you're yeah. paying effectively five grand for software, which Absolutely. is a, you know that's a pretty nice business if you can get people, if you can get people paying five grand for something where the marginal cost is zero, that's yeah. pretty cute. <laughs> Absolutely, hundred percent. Yeah. So um, Abba, so to kind of touch on something. Rory mentioned earlier in this call um, the importance of, I guess, young people seeing people who look like them in particular industries or yeah. doing things that are different. For you, yeah. uh, are you able to touch a little bit on the importance of black men in the tech space, and especially at an international level? Like, what's your yeah. what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's I think it's key. Um, I think it's um, I haven't seen you know too much representation in that regards. However, that doesn't you know it discourages me in many ways. I think if anything, it encourages me to you know push on. But the representation is absolutely pivotal for um, just other people coming through. I know one one thing with the tech industry is it's quite diverse, anyways, and it's open mm -hmm. to whoever wants to make um, a gain or who wants to make you know headway in in that area. Um, I think it just takes for the right products for the right person at the right time to sort of make that landmark. And then, the, you know, everyone else will follow through. And, and I think with tech as well, there's so much creativity with it. It's, uh, I think a lot of people are doing um, a lot of ground and foundational work at the moment. Um, and so we'll yet to see, you know, the, the results of that progress in the next few years, which I think would be, then be a boom of, you know, so many um, representation or so much representation of, you know, diverse backgrounds, you know, in, in, in that area. And um, for myself, if I'm speaking particularly for the automotive industry, representation is incredibly low. I mean, it, when I was at Toyota, I was effectively only black man in the company, same as Persia Citroen as well, and probably will be the same as how and I. Um, for myself, uh, it's not discouraging. Again, like I said before, however, um, I, you know, don't mind being a pioneer. I don't mind being someone that goes to Aries first and, you know, sort of, you know, encourage other people to come in. And um, what I do think is happening now is that, like I said before, a lot of people are leaving the traditional spaces. You see Bankhead, um, we've, we probably, um, uh, traditional arts and crafts and things of that nature and entertainment, music. People are leaving those spaces where traditionally they've been forced into sports as well as another one. And, they prob and they're now looking at, you know, the opportunities that are arising um, holistically, not on um, COVID, yes, is a big factor, but also um, with just the, um, what we call the fourth industrial revolution is what we see now. Um, you know, with 5G, we see it with, um, again, uh, 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 super fast Wi-Fi, the internet of things, and, and just so much going on now. And there's so much opportunity in so many different industries where individuals can now utilize skills that they may not have known um, and learning new skills that they may not have traditionally learned and now being able to make a lot of gain in those areas as well. So for me personally, my aim is to keep learning, keep growing, keep developing, meeting great people like Rory, um, Herbert and Kian, and like the likes of yourself, you know, bringing ideas in and then being able to just um, 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 grow in the space that I'm in and, and hopefully be an example to someone that is, um, may not naturally have come into the industry or at least support someone else um, on, on my way um, to the future. So um, that's what I'll say really um, in that area. Yeah, I appreciate that because just during this call, I, I, especially during that last segment when you were speaking more about your interests, uh, yeah. I'm I'm truly impressed by your knowledge within the, yeah. the tech space yeah. at a at a broad level, but also specifically automotive and aviation. That yeah. was that was pretty cool. 
I'm personally in favour of saying any, any, first of all, one thing that makes a big difference to how diversely you hire, and that means diversity in everything, is when you hire people in groups, you hire a wider range of people than when you hire people one at a time. Mm. Because when you hire a group of people, you look for complementarity. And when you hire one person, you kind of look for conformity. Mm. And, you know, I wouldn't, you know, I, 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 you know, I'm white and male, okay? But I wouldn't have, I don't think I would have got my first job if there'd just been one job going, because I was too weird. But there were four jobs, and there were, you know, and therefore people's appetite for variety goes up. Yeah. You know, it's rather like if you have two houses, you don't have two identical houses, do you? Yeah, right? Yeah. You know, two houses, you have one in the middle of the city and one by the sea. You know, yeah. if you have two cars, you don't have two identical cars. And so... The other thing is there's some really interesting research on this, like provided you get two people in a candidate pool, let's say you have a candidate pool of seven people, okay? If you have two people from a minority group, their chances of getting hired are exactly the same as they would be at random, if you like, okay? Weirdly, if you just have one, it goes down. Mm. And I don't know why that is, but it's worth investigating because yeah. it seems to be yeah. like a property of the human mind which it may be it may be my it may be my boringness theory that you you know you don't you don't hire the outlier you never hire the outlier and that and that applies not and when i say outlier that doesn't just apply to race or gender um and obviously in something like advertising the gender question doesn't really apply at the younger level anymore um uh, to the same extent it, and, mm -hmm. and you know partly the reason that a lot of people at the top of advertising are male is because that's who advertising agencies hired in 1980 you know yeah exactly. you know there's a lot of you know there's a lot of delayed action working through the system yeah but but i think i, I think that i i would always favor saying whatever you do you know you should make sure that your candidate pool contains if you've got a candidate pool of, of six people you should have two or more people from an unexpected background of any kind. And that applies to, you know, I mean, I mean, there are white male British people who come from parts of the country where you're fairly majorly disadvantaged. It's worth remembering yeah. that there are white Americans as well. Definitely. You know, there's yeah. a, you know, uh, who are massively disadvantaged. Hmm. Um, but having, making sure that you kind of, uh, you broaden you broaden your repertoire of hiring seems to me really really important because particularly in an ad agency where the, you know that's the whole point you know if you've got a conformist ad agency you know um, and the other thing the other thing I think that's been really valuable over the last few months is listening to other people's stories uh, genuine experiences because there are things for example about the black experience which just never occurred to me you know there are aspects of things where you know you go oh i get it okay now i understand it never it's not it's not the fact that you willfully didn't know it it just never mm. occurred to you that depending on context and circumstance you'd see the same thing totally differently and all you'd be treated completely differently on the basis mm. of uh you know um some uh, just you know just anomalous stuff and actually what's been very valuable about this particular um uh, uh last i suppose the last three months under covid is part we are hearing actually an array of voices quite a lot of political movements actually if mm. you were white consisted of basically white left-wing people 
people shouting at you. Okay, mm. I'm, I'm not interested in that. I know what they're going to say anyway, right? Mm. Okay, it's a totally boring kind of experience. Whereas actually, the real diverse experience of different people who've experienced different things, that's really, really worth listening to because mm. it's completely enlightening and eye opening. Yeah. Whereas the sort of shout, what I call the shouty brigade, uh, you know, <laughs> so having white, highly educated social justice campaigners kind of yell at you. It's kind of like, <laughs> look, I know exactly what you're going to say. There's nothing, you know, your experience isn't actually that different from mine. You don't really, I'm not going to learn anything here. Mm. Whereas actually getting a, a variety of voices really matters. Yeah. Kian, is there anything you want to add before we close out? Yeah, I've got one question, which would be amazing kind of hearing all your perspectives. Firstly, I, I just wanted to say, I feel like I've learned so much in the space of an hour, uh, just listening right. to people. And for me, listening in, there was, if I could kind of think about one theme that was clear all throughout, even though we've touched on like loads of different stuff is like in a busy world where lots of stuff is happening, how do you kind of create space? So space to think about new opportunities, space to steal like you were saying rory space to kind of think about different people and make sure people are represented one thing i'd love like all three of you kind of to get a perspective was on what do you guys think from your experiences is could be a good solution when it comes to either creating that space or understanding the world from other people's perspectives One of the things I do, which is weird, um, is I would actually have a period where I think there's a critical mass issue at stake here, which is once you get a certain number of black faces or um, a certain number of people from any group in an organization, okay, the problem will then sort itself out naturally, but you have to get above the tipping point. You have to get above a certain kind of threshold. And I think there's a threshold problem in a lot of businesses. And I said to HR, I said, why don't we just do a six month thing where for six months or 12 months, we only hire people from minority backgrounds. And then we just revert to normal. Because I said, once you've done that, what you'll probably find is that, you know, that, that a lot, by the way, a lot of prejudice is just a network problem, by the way, because yeah. if you look at how most hiring happens, it, the theory is that you have a job and you go out and you get a candidate pool of 20 people and you interview them all and you choose. What generally happens in the ad industry is someone says, look, we need an account director next Wednesday. Does anybody know anybody, right? Yeah, yeah. And if, you, if, you, if your staff are mostly white and their networks are mostly white, they, yeah. they, may, they may be the least prejudiced people in the world, but they just know a lot of white people, right? people. okay? Mm. It's a total factor of just net, of social networks and the fact that they're not actually evenly distributed. And so my hunch is that once you get over a certain threshold, then you start getting different networks of recruitment. And yeah. that will then solve the problem. But you need to get to that kind of 5-10% threshold before it starts working. It's a bit like, you know, the first fax machine, you know, doesn't have, have much effect. It's when, you know, it's when you reach a certain level of penetration that it becomes important. 
And I, I, I always have the hunch that there's something there where actually a kind of short burst of very, I was then told by HR that it's completely illegal to do that, that we couldn't do it because it would be illegal. <laughs> but I said, okay, it may be illegal, but that would kind of solve the problem more effectively than anything else. Mm. But also in a sense, it, it would be sort of fair in a way, because after 12 months, you just revert to hiring how you did before and see what happens. Nice. Yeah. So in terms of, you know, creating a space um, that I think will be, you know, adequate to sort of allow certain practices to happen, um, I would say um, I think more events. And when I say events, I, I say that in a way that um, of people of representation um, out on social media to sort of um, talk about, you know, different aspects and different um, topics. For example, you know, we're, we're here, we're speaking on tech. And um, if I saw, you know, different individuals from, you know, for example, Microsoft, um, um, Oracle and, and things of that nature, um, holding events, just, you know, laying down, you know, their pathway and laying down just how um, their journey had been um, and, you know, making that an open space, um, that can give me more information, just more information that, you know, I may not have had before that would allow me to go and action quite a few things in, in that regards. Now, I'm not saying it's probably not, it's probably been done, maybe, it's probably been attempted, but maybe not on a wider scale, um, and maybe not in a way that um, it's reached enough people. Um, I think with tactical marketing, um, it can definitely work, and I think you could, we can reach, you know, diverse backgrounds. I'm not just talking about black men, I'm talking about, you know, uh, females, I'm talking about uh, um, um, males from different parts of the UK, females from different yeah. parts of the UK, and, and individuals from different parts of the world. Um, getting them to see how um, they're able to actually get into certain spaces they may not have known how to, um, and you know the skills needed to get in there as well. Because, for example, if I didn't do my personal research extensively, the words front-end engineering, back-end engineering, front-end development, back-end is all jargon, irrespective of you know who said it and how it's said. Um, I need to know practically how I learned those skills and how I develop those skills and also how I grow my experience in those skills and what companies or what individuals or what people are willing to take me on so I'm able to get the experience that the uh, uh, employers are asking for because now we see you know, crazy requirements you know, when you're going for a job, you know, entry-level job, entry-level junior developer. They want you to have done it for two years in the company previously <laughs> but how am I able to do that if I'm just a graduate? So I guess, you know, these areas and these spaces um, for conversations and information um, can help, in my opinion. Right. Yeah. And I, I don't have anything really in-depth. Um, I agree with both Rory and Abba. My main thing is um, I just encourage people to listen. You know, that's if we are able to create spaces to interact just listen, listen across the board, regardless of background and biases and all that. And I think for there to be growth, we have to listen where people are so that we can move forward together. Yeah. One thing I notice is a weird benefit of video conferencing is that when you have a TV program now, when they interviewed people on a subject, you know, a year ago, you had the same people just coming up again and again and again. Because you had to be basically someone who'd done it five times before. You had to be available at two hours notice. You had to be based yeah. in London, you know. And the, one of the great things is that now every TV studio knows that pretty much anybody they want to talk to is able to hop onto a Zoom call. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Okay. You do get just a much more interesting. I mean, one of the things you never hear, for example, just an example, is there are a lot of black conservative voices, right? Okay. Do, yeah. You never hear those. Right? <laughs> no, it's really interesting. It's really, really interesting because it's a viewpoint mm. you've never heard. Okay. Yeah. And um, uh, and because what used to happen in the media is they basically had your stereotypical kind of you know artificial conflict. Mm, yeah. which was which was typically sort of stage managed uh, it's just you know. an argument <laughs> and they just had they go okay because i always noticed if you ever said on tv you know they said would you like to come on tv and you say i have a very nuanced and complicated opinion <laughs> on this they weren't interested they'd say oh you're not needed anymore yeah and yeah. um so one of the great things i've noticed is that now they know that you can basically interview anybody for a tv program it has got a lot better and that's one great thing that, that's happened i think to the media that you just get more voices. <laughs> really that simple. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I thank both Rory and Abel for making the time to chat with us today. Um, if there's ever an opportunity to connect with you again down the road, I would definitely be open to it. Um, if I'm ever able to travel to uh, to England once COVID Please is come over. Come drop in. Yes, I'll have a cup of tea or coffee with you. <laughs> <laughs> And yeah. a few beers. Excellent. Yeah, I'm, I'm cool with that too. <laughs> <laughs>